So if you have not opened your Bibles or your Bible apps, please do so. Uh, It's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 4 through 13 as Jen read for us. And as Pastor Paul mentioned last week, uh, we are jumping back into our study of 1 Corinthians. We began this study last fall, and we're kind of taking this study uh, chunks at a time as we move through it. And so it probably would be helpful to just cover a little bit of where we've been before we uh, continue uh, on, on into chapter 8. And so uh, in uh, last fall, so a year ago, we started in chapters 1 through 4, and what we saw is uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul was writing to this church at Corinth was being written to one of the messiest churches in history. Uh, if, if, if there's a problem the church has faced, this church had that problem. And so in chapters 1 through 4, Paul confronts their love affair with worldly wisdom. They had adopted a worldly mindset about wisdom and philosophy, and that was affecting the way that they were living their lives. And so they were chasing things like status and success and power rather than living by gospel wisdom, which is shaped by the cross and dying to self. Then in chapters 5 through 7, Paul turns his attention to specific ethical issues. So not only had the Corinthians' gospel amnesia caused them to become sort of clicky with each other and grabbing for power and status, it was also causing them to justify sin, make excuse for sin, whether it be sin for themselves or sin of others, such that they had gross and rampant sin that they should have been dealing with and were not. And then when we, as we turn our attention to chapters 8 through 11 this fall, one of the things that we are going to see is how the Corinthians use knowledge and theology to not only justify sin, but also harm one another. Use knowledge to harm others. So growing up, I loved the 4th of July. Loved the fireworks displays, yes, Loved getting together with friends and family for picnics and eating hot dogs and burgers. Amazing. Loved celebrating America and freedom. Yes. But the reason why I loved the 4th of July, bottle rocket fights. Some of you all, you spend your firework money on sort of the big boomers that make, you know, big noises and shoot big, big lights and displays. I've, I've been to some of your fireworks displays and they are amazing. Growing up, my brother and I and my friends, we spent all of our firework money on bottle rockets. And you can buy those things by the gross, and you can get a lot of them cheap. And so we would buy as many bottle rockets as we could, and we would devise the most creative ways possible to shoot them at each other. Kids, this is very dangerous. Don't be like Pastor Chris. Parents, sorry. But in, in, in that, in, in a bottle rocket fight, and if you've ever done this before, you know that one of the most important elements of being able to be good at bottle rocket fights is being able to either throw them or shoot them out of your hand when there's nothing else to use. It, it requires skill and timing and guts to be able to shoot bottle rockets out of your hand or throw them in such a way that they actually travel towards another person. <laughs> I was texting with my mom yesterday, and I'm like, I'm actually surprised that you let us do this. I mean, I can't believe that that you actually trusted us enough not to kill ourselves. And then she reminded me of the one time we actually shot one through the neighbor's window, and I was like, oh yeah, that happened too. (laughs) 
So in, in college, so or actually just right out of college, uh, during one of the 4th of July, I, I remember teaching my adopted brothers who were uh, in middle school and elementary school how to do this, <laughs> how, to, how to actually throw a bottle rocket out of your hand or shoot it out of your hand. And a couple min- minutes into doing this, I, I, it dawns on me, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> this is actually stupid and dangerous because, look, I, I may have the knowledge and the skill to do this without getting hurt, but there's no way that they do. There is no way that they have the knowledge to be able to throw a bottle rocket or shoot it out of their hand without blowing themselves up or hurting somebody else. And so for me to share my knowledge or for me to try to get them to do this, wow, would be very unloving. Even more, if I were to just do this in front of them and they were to see me do this and they would think, hey, our big brother is doing this, this is cool, we should do it too, well, that would also be quite unloving of me because it would bring harm. You know, knowledge has a way of bringing power to us, right? We, we say this, knowledge is power. We also recognize that knowledge brings a sort of freedom, that when we gain particular types of knowledge, we're free and we're empowered and we're skilled to do things we might not otherwise be able to do. It brings a sort of freedom to us. But what happens when our knowledge and our freedom actually brings harm. Could, could we lay down our freedom and lay down our rights if we knew that our knowledge and our freedom and our rights were actually causing harm to other people? Laying down freedom. What, 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 a, what an interesting thing to consider, especially in our culture. I mean, this is America, right? We don't lay down freedom. We fight for freedom. This is a place where we have rights. Don't tread on me. That's that's plastered all over flags and signs and bumper stickers. Maybe you have that flag. Maybe you've said those things. The idea of laying down rights rubs against so much of our culture. But here's the question for us. Are we Americans first or are we Christians first? Is, are our hearts being shaped by the culture of our society or the culture of the gospel? Is our law ultimately the Constitution or God's Word? Are we willing to lay down rights when we recognize that it may be for the good of others? Now, look, praise God for cultural and political freedom. We should care about that. I'm not saying dismiss that. Praise God we live in a country where we have these things because so many in this world do not. But our freedoms and rights and knowledge, our highest good. Are they the thing we most live for at any cost? Do they dictate what we will and will not do? 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 paints a wildly different picture than our freedom-demanding, rights-demanding, expressive individualism, live-my-truth culture. It paints a picture of laying down rights, of laying down freedom to love others and to seek the good of others and build others up in Christ. And here in chapter 8, God's word really cuts to the chase for us 
really cuts past a lot of our excuses and defense and, and exposes a lot of the ways we've been shaped by our culture, and it challenges us to consider how we prioritize the use of our freedom. And so the title of my message this morning is Relationships Over Rights. And here's the main point that 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13 challenges us with and confronts us with. That building up in love is always greater than exercising rights. Building up in love is always greater than exer- excuse me, exercising freedom. Exercising rights, exercising freedom. And, and to make this point, the Apostle Paul is going to highlight sort of three things as he, as he moves through uh, this section of his letter. The first thing is he's going to acknowledge, hey, knowledge brings freedom. We're going to see this, that knowledge actually brings freedom. And this in some ways is good. Second, but that freedom can also bring harm. And then third, love calls us to lay down freedom. And so as we move through this passage, we're going to see these three things ultimately pointing us to the truth that building up in love is always greater than exercising freedom. And so let's first consider how knowledge brings freedom. And in 1 Corinthians 8, there's a very specific issue that's in play. And so if we're going to understand what's going on, we need to understand what Paul means by food sacrifice to idols. What, what is going on in Corinth that Paul is addressing in this letter? Well, We need to understand that dotting the landscape of the city of Corinth and really in all cities throughout ancient Rome were various temples erected to the worship of the multitude of gods that the Romans would worship. And in those temples, there would be ritualistic meals and festivals that would take place where where animals would be killed as an offering and then the meat of those animals would be eaten in celebration. And the belief was this, that the god would inject that meat with his spirits or its power, and then by eating that meat, that power would then be transferred to my body. And so this was part of the pagan worship at the time. But not all of the meat would be eaten at these festivals. So what was left over would often get sold in the market. And so in this way, the temples often also were kind of the butcher shops of the ancient world. And for many, if not most of the people in Corinth, if they were going to eat meat, they were going to eat it from a temple. And so whether they went to the temple itself or whether they bought it in the market, this meat that they were eating had been sacrificed to these idols. The other part of this is the temples were not only used as places for worshiping these gods. They were also sort of the community centers, if you will, of the ancient world. And so people would go and they would hang out socially there. They would throw parties and events there. And often their food would be served. And where did that food come from? Where did the meat come from? Well, it came from the temple and it had been sacrificed to an idol. And so here was the question in front of the church in Corinth. Could Christians go to these social functions in the temple and eat the meat that was sacrificed to these idols, to these false gods? Was this allowed? Well, Paul is going to have a much more direct answer for us in chapter 10. But here in chapter 8, he's going to get underneath the heart of the issue. And so rather than just jumping to the direct answer, he's actually going to confront some heart things. He's going to go deeper than just a simple answer. 
And he's going to get inside what is happening in the church and what's causing this discussion and what's causing the conflict. So some in Corinth were saying, yes, absolutely we can. We can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. We can go to these social events and eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And in verse 4, Paul repeats some of the arguments they're making. About, food, about eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Uh, essentially, they were saying this, that we are free to eat food sacrificed to idols because the idol really isn't a thing. Well, we recognize that it isn't really a God. It's empty. It's a false God. The, the, the God's spirit and his power isn't transferred into that meat. And then when I eat the meat, it isn't transferred into my body. They, they recognize this, this isn't really a thing. This isn't really what is happening. And you know what? They're right. A steak is just a steak. They, they, their theology was correct. And, and Paul actually affirms their theology in verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Paul says, yes, you're right. Idols are empty. They are powerless. And look, even if there are people who worship other gods and follow other lords, we recognize there is only one God. There is only one Lord. There is only one God who is the sovereign creator of all. There is only one God who is glorious and worthy of all our worship. There's no one beside him. We also recognize that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All life and power and hope and grace and peace and salvation are in him and through him. There's no one else beside Paul's like, you're right. Your theology is on point here. That the, these other gods that people worship, these other lords that they serve, they're nothing. The Father is all. Christ is all. So Paul affirms their theological knowledge. He, he affirms their theology in there, and, and he's saying, yes, you do have freedom here. There is freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we recognize that the idol isn't a god and there's no spiritual power in the meat. You are free to simply eat this food as something to be received with thanksgiving, as he says in another place in scripture. And so let's just start by saying this, friends, good theology matters. Knowledge matters. Good theology sets us free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of legalism. Like, knowledge does matter. Knowledge brings freedom. I mean, how many of us have been set free from idols? How many of us have been set free from false gods? How many of us have been set free from the false gods of false religion or the gods of success and status and wealth and relationships? I mean, how many of us have been set free from believing I have to perform and jump through hoops to get God to like me and love me? Praise God for good theology and knowledge. Praise God for the life-giving freedom that's found when we know the true gospel. We should care deeply about knowledge. We should care deeply about theology. Praise God that in Christ we're not burdened and weighed down by rules and hoops to jump through, but that we walk in grace and we walk in freedom to enjoy life and live for the glory of Christ. So whatever else 
this passage says, don't miss it. Paul is first affirming, yes, theology matters. Knowledge is good. However, however, and here's where it gets messy. Here's where it gets difficult for us. Whatever freedom our knowledge brings, whatever freedom we have in Christ, we must be careful that it does not bring harm. As Paul says about some of those in the Corinthian church in verse 6, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. And so some Christians in Corinth had the knowledge that this food they could eat it. The, the, the meat sacrificed to idols, they could eat it. There was freedom to do that. But some Christians did not have this knowledge. Yes, they, they believed the gospel. They were trusting in Jesus. But their understanding of theology, their understanding of the gospel, their understanding of God was immature, was underdeveloped, such that, that when they would do this, if they, if they were to eat this meat sacrificed to idols, they would actually run into a problem. Because prior to becoming a Christian, they practiced idolatry. And so for them to go back into the temple to one of these social functions and eat this meat caused them to defile their weak conscience. Now, what does this mean exactly? What is Paul saying by defiled conscience? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that these Christians were offended. You see, often this, this passage gets interpreted as well, some Christians get offended by something that you do, and so you shouldn't do that thing because you don't want to offend them. Hey, that might be true to some degree, but that's not what this passage is talking about. And, and I think it's important to, to recognize that because it saves us from the danger of thinking that, that those who are maybe spiritually immature or emotionally immature, they get offended by every little thing, can sort of call the shots. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's pressing much deeper. Well, while we're not entirely sure, like the defiled conscience, it, it's a really deep and multi-layered uh, thing here. Here's, here's sort of the range of meaning. To have their consciences defiled means that these, Christ, these weak Christians, for them to go to the social gatherings at the temple and eat the meat sacrificed to idols, at worst, it would cause them to sin. And at best, it would cause them to become so morally confused that it was damaging to their conscience and to their faith. And so harm is happening, not offense, harm. Sin or throwing someone's conscience and faith into such turmoil that they're unsure of what they believe anymore, that it's actually causing doubts and crisis of conscience. And so while some Christians could eat in freedom, others couldn't. And so we could here just go, okay, fair enough. Some of those Christians can go to the temple and those social interactions and the other Christians just kind of stay home if it were just that simple. More is happening here. As Paul goes on to say in verse 9 to the strong Christians, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And so the Corinthians, who had the knowledge and had this freedom, were regularly going to these social gatherings, and the fact that they could go to these social gatherings on a regular basis meant that they probably had higher social status. 
meant that they actually had the means to go to these particular parties and buy the meats and buy the food and be able to, to, to engage socially in this way. And so what was happening is that these weaker Christians those with an underdeveloped conscience, underdeveloped theology, would see the Christians who were more mature and who had higher social standing going to the temple, and they thought, hey, I want to be like that person, right? I want to be the mature person. I want to have the social status and the social standing, and so I'm going to follow them and do what they're doing. And so in that, the the weak Christians were following after and modeling what the strong Christians were doing, but in that, their consciences were being defiled. And here's where it gets crazy. Here's where it gets incredibly counterintuitive for us here. Because let's just be honest for a second. If this was happening in the church, I'll be honest, like as I was studying this passage, I tried my best to just be honest about, okay, if this kind of thing were happening at First City Church, what would my pastoral instincts be? And I think Here's what I think my pastoral instincts would be, and I think, I think a lot of us, this is what we do. We, we would talk to the weak Christian and we'd say, hey, you don't need to keep up with the Joneses. It's fine if you don't go to this, this social gathering. You don't need to do that. Your identity isn't in that. And also, hey, I want you to have the theological knowledge so that you can actually do things in freedom and not get worried and get caught up about meat sacrifice to idols. I'm going to be honest. That's probably what I would do. And I think a lot of us with good gospel-centered lenses would probably do the same thing. That's not what Paul does. (laughs) This is incredibly counterintuitive. What does Paul do in the midst of this situation? He doesn't look at the weak. He looks at the strong. He looks at the ones with the knowledge and the well-developed theology. He looks squarely at them and he says this to them. Do you have freedom? Yes, absolutely you have freedom. You have knowledge, not denying that. But your practices are causing your brother and sister to sin or causing them to become so twisted up in their conscience and their faith that it's damaging their faith, damaging their conscience. He he looks at the strong and he says, hey, you're the one that needs to change your behavior. You're the one that needs to lay down your rights. You're the one that needs to change and actually account for your weaker brother or sister and do something about that. Because guess what? When you allow them to follow after you and you damage their conscience, you're sinning against them. And not only are you sinning against them, you're sinning against Christ. Like, yo, (laughs) this is so counterintuitive. This is not what we would typically do and how we would typically enter into these situations. Why? Because as good Americans, the last thing in the world we want to do is lay down our rights. The last thing in the the world we want to do is say there are freedoms that we willingly let go of, step away from and say, hey, that's okay, I don't need to do that. And as evangelical Americans, we like to say freedom in Christ. I mean, how many of us have been saved out of legalism? So I understand that, I get that. But we become so big champions of freedom in Christ. No one's going to tell me what to do because I have freedom in Christ. Don't bind my conscience with legalism. That we stop and miss that there's something greater than the freedoms that we have in Christ. That, that, That there's more to life in Christ than just 
the freedoms that we're given because of the gospel of grace. And so I want us to, to, to recognize and stop and just be honest about where our hearts are. Because in addressing the strong, here's what the Apostle Paul does. He actually exposes something in their heart. He, he exposes the issue under the issue. On the surface, this looks like an issue of knowledge and freedom in Christ and good theology and how that's playing out. But God's word sees deeper. The Holy Spirit inspiring Paul sees deeper to what was happening. And by calling these strong Christians to account, he was exposing that, hey, their freedom in Christ was actually not about freedom in Christ. Their freedom in Christ was actually a front. It was a front to status and standing. Man, man, if I, if I can go to this temple and hang out with these people and gain social standing, then I'm somebody. And guess what? Freedom in Christ allows me to do that. How convenient. Freedom in Christ became a way for them to grab status in society, in culture, but also status in the church because they were the theologically mature ones. And so all their talk about freedom in Christ was really about them and their identity and their status. And how do we know this? Because they were fighting Paul on it. They were fighting for this. They, they were fighting to maintain this status and be able to go to the temple so that they could keep up with the Joneses, <laughs> so that they could be seen as relevant in culture and relevant in society. Paul pushes back on this. He doesn't downplay that theology is important. He doesn't downplay that knowledge is important. But he points at them and says, hey, there's something greater, something far more important. And if you can't see that, your knowledge and your theology will actually lead you to sin. And not just sin against people, sin against Christ. Because guess what? Jesus identifies with the weak. Those weak brothers and sisters that you look down on theologically, that you look at them like, man, they're a theological mess. Their consciences are a mess. I just wish they could get it together. Jesus identifies with them. <laughs> they're my people. And if you sin against them, you sin against me. Wow. Our freedom can cause harm. And so do we have freedom in Christ? Yes. Is that freedom great? Yes. But exercising that freedom isn't the greatest good. As Paul concludes in verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Do you hear what he's saying? If I have to lay down a freedom forever to keep my brother or sister from falling, I'll do it. Why? Because love calls us to lay down freedom it's not, let me get their theology straightened out. It's if I have to, yeah, maybe we need to get the theology straightened out. Not minimizing that. But if I have to, if they never get their theology straightened out, guess what I'm willing to do? Lay down my freedom so that they would never sin and they would never fall, so I would not harm them. Friends, Christ gives us great freedoms, gives us amazing freedoms, but God's word never teaches us to demand them. 
If you find in your heart a demand for your rights, a demand for your freedom, that's the culture shaping your heart, not God's word. Boy, this humbles us, doesn't it? Boy, this challenges us in so many ways. That, that, that we can convince ourselves that demanding rights and demanding freedom are actually shaped by God's word and what Christ calls us to because we have freedom in Christ. But Christ calls us to something else. Christ calls us to lay down our freedom. Why? Because building up others in love is always greater than exercising freedom. Christ calls us to, yes, enjoy our freedom, but to hold that freedom open-handedly, recognizing that there's a greater good, something more that we live for, love. Building up others in love. That is always greater than exercising freedom. And look, here's something I, I want to admit, I want to be honest about. There really isn't an exact parallel in our culture to what's happening in Corinth. There, there really isn't. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time dialoguing with folks and, and trying to think through, okay, what, what is like this? And, and there's, there's some things that kind of are similar. If you think of like maybe Christians, the way they, they deal with drinking alcohol or movies and music or, or maybe even some eating habits. But even that is, is different in many ways. And so there's not an exact sort of one-to-one -one correlation. I don't, I don't think we have the exact same societal practices that would lead to scenarios just like this. And so if we, we try to point to exact application, it can become very tricky and, and, and in some ways even sets us up to sort of explain things away. And so here's what I want us to recognize. Well, let's leave aside the specifics for a moment and just take a step back and say, regardless of where this gets applied and how it gets applied, and regardless of the similarities and differences, here's what this passage holds out for us. Building up others in love is always greater than exercising freedom. Laying down our rights in love is what we are called to do. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the posture of our hearts, is the posture of your heart, the posture of my heart, the posture of our heart as a church together, such that, that we are willing to lay down our freedoms and lay down our rights in love? Do we believe that building up others in love is always greater than exercising freedom? Are we willing to look at our weaker brothers and sisters and say, because I love you, I will not bring harm to you? Friends, if we're going to do this, if we're going to be shaped by gospel wisdom and, and the cross more than our culture, we need to be honest about our hearts. We need to be honest about the ways that we can use knowledge and freedom to gain status and standing. Could it be, could it be the reason we struggle so much to lay down rights and lay down freedoms for others is because we recognize that the knowledge that we have and maybe even some ways the rights and freedoms that we have have given us an identity and we don't want to let go of that? Like, like we have spent time accumulating knowledge and that knowledge has brought benefit to us and it's, it's brought freedom to us in many ways. And to look at someone who's weaker, who lacks the knowledge, who struggles in ways we don't, and to say, I'm going to lay down my rights for you. Whew. That feels like we have to, a part of us has to die. That we have to give up something that we've invested our sense of self in. And yes, absolutely, that's the case. That is what Jesus is calling you to do, to die to self. To die to self in order to love 
others. Dying to self feels like death. Because <laughs> it is. And it's hard. But friends, Paul's instruction in chapter 8 It's the outworking of the gospel wisdom at the heart of this entire letter. And what defines gospel wisdom? The cross of Jesus Christ. Not status, not success, not power, not rights, not even knowledge. The cross. Humility. Dying to self. Laying down our lives. Love. Love that will lay down rights and freedoms. Because friends, this is the way of our Lord. This is what Jesus himself did in love. He laid down his freedoms and his rights for us. It was while we were weak that Christ gave up his life. While we were weak, he laid down his freedoms and his rights. While we were theological hot messes, while we were given over to idolatry and pride and sin, when we were broken sinners, sinning against ourselves, sinning against others, making a mess of ourselves in the world, Christ laid down his rights and his freedoms for us. He died for us while we were weak. He died for us when we did not deserve it. He didn't demand that we get our lives straightened out. He didn't stand on his freedoms and rights. No, he willingly laid down his life when we didn't deserve an ounce of it. Why? So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be forgiven and set free from our guilt and shame. So that we could be set free from the power of sin and walk in newness of life. So that we could walk in righteousness and hope and love. So that we could be like him and lay down our lives for others. Christ laid down his freedom and his rights to build us up, to rescue us out of the mire and destruction of sin and set us on a rock to make us holy and blameless in his sight, in the sight of God the Father, so that we now can walk, not as the world walks, but as he walked. As we walk as Jesus walked so that our hearts could be shaped in Christ and like Christ. Friends, that our Lord demonstrated this love that our God is love, it makes absolute and complete sense that our lives as disciples would be marked by the same love. That that, that Jesus is this way and Jesus is transforming us and making us like him. It makes absolute sense that our lives too would be defined by a love that lays down freedom and lays down rights and builds others up in love. Friends, for those who who have had hearts transformed by the gospel, for us who have been captured by that gospel love, who can rehearse the story of how he rescued you, how he reached in and grabbed you out of that pit and set you on a firm foundation, that gospel love, boy, that's the gospel love we now go and live for others. We now live so that others are built up in love. And is this not the greater way? Look, salvation wasn't accomplished by demanding rights, but through sacrifice. You have been saved and set free and renewed and transformed because Christ laid down his rights, not because he demanded them. The church is built up and strengthened and unified and matured. People come to know Jesus, as we're going to see in the next couple weeks, when we lay down our lives, not when we demand our rights. And so 
I, I want us just to acknowledge that there are many ways that the direct application of this passage is unclear. But, but here's where I want us to start, because we're going to wrestle through this theme for the next several weeks. Here's where I want us to start as a church, with just a posture of saying, Lord, search my heart. Try me. See if there's any unclean thing in my heart. Examine me. Go into the nooks and crannies of my heart and the pride and the hard spaces that are there and expose me where I am holding on to my rights and my freedoms at the cost of others. We need the Spirit to search us and humble us. And so I, I, I want the posture of First City Church over the next several weeks to be one of prayer on our knees saying, Lord, help us, break us, humble us so that we are the kind of people and the kind of church that will build others up in love, not demand our rights, while in a culture that is going nuts demanding their rights, harming each other, fighting each other, killing each other, destroying and wrecking each other because we demand our rights. Here we are as a church saying, no, there's something greater to live for, love. Something better to give our lives to, building up others in love, laying down our rights, laying down our freedom, and saying because of Christ, because of what he has done and who he is, this is who we're going to be. And so church, I want to invite us, even this morning, to just humble ourselves in prayer. Because the last thing in the world I want us to do is to caveat this passage into irreverence. To, to say, well, it doesn't apply here and it doesn't apply here, and so I don't really know how this applies. No, we hit our knees and say, Lord, teach me how to apply this. And with that heart, with that posture, let's enter into prayer even right now.